I want to start today with a simple statement and see if you agree with it. And then we're going to kind of march from there. Here's the simple statement that I want to put it. Put it up on the screen. Smart people do dumb things. How many of you agree with that? All right. You might want to give examples of somebody sitting around you. All right. How many of you have ever, um, you've been with your spouse or you've been with a friend and they will ask you the question, why in the world did you and in your mind, the only answer you can think of is, I have no clue. It was dumb. I shouldn't have done it. We, I, many of you know I was at my 20th class reunion um, last weekend. And we, you know, we, we're at the football game on Friday night. Your classmates, you're sitting around talking. And as you're sitting around talking, stories come up. And as stories come up, that I realized in the midst of the story, the number of times in my head or was said out loud when someone re- relays something we did in high school that thought, man, that was a dumb thing to do, right? Like the stories that we would tell, like we, what was I thinking, right? This week, in fact, uh, one of the late night hosts uh, did a, a hashtag of that was stupid, all right? Some of you may have seen that, but I picked some of those um, from there. And uh, we're going to look at some of these. These are people typing in things that they thought was stupid. It says, one time someone told me they had the same name as me, and I asked what their name was. All right, here's another one. That was from Becca. I don't think it was my Becca. Uh, Our Becca once accidentally said, I love you at the end of a conference call. All right. This is Nicole Skinner. I don't know Nicole, but she closed a heavy door on her wrist because I wondered if it would hurt. I broke my wrist. All right. Look at this. This is Peter Holmes. Do y'all know Peter Holmes? Son of Janetta and Landry. All right. He didn't get on Fallon, but he put one up. I once got to the airport for an international flight one week early. That was like three or four months ago. He showed up for his flight and his ticket had a week later on the date. They didn't need him there that early. All right. This is somebody wrote, at our wedding reception, I introduced my new husband as my first husband. I don't think they suggest that, but that's that. Here's one. Being a pastor, I once asked a woman at church if she wanted prayer for her and her baby. She wasn't pregnant. Anybody ever done that? You want to confess? Like, how far along are you? I'm I'm not. All right. And then this is the one that started it all. I once ran into a glass door when I heard an ice cream truck outside. All right, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever run into a glass door before? Is there anything more humiliating and painful at the same time? Let me see your hands. I need to see your hands. All right. So listen, smart people do dumb things. Amen? Are you here? Yeah. Secondly, wise people... Do foolish things. Lastly, godly people do sinful things. You see, it's not a big deal when it's something stupid or dumb and it doesn't affect anybody other than yourself, maybe. I mean, running into a glass door, it doesn't have long-term ramifications. Now, perhaps pronouncing your new husband as your first husband might. What about when we do things that are sinful. I remember being in seminary and uh, having class with a guy who had um, made a major mistake. 
And he was confessing some stuff to us as a class. We knew the mistake. He had done that earlier to to be a part of our, our group. He had had to do some things. But he said, you know, what I keep thinking about is... That he he was watching when all this happened and and he he had committed this sin and it was starting to get found out. He he said, I remember watching one of those survival shows. You know, one of the the shows like Bear Grylls or one of those guys that shows you how to survive in the wild. And, And he said he was hanging from a cliff and he looked to the camera and he said, this is a jump that I can make 99 out of 100 times. But if I hit the one time, I never get another chance. And he said, I was sitting in the midst of being guilty over this sin and reliving what had happened in my life. And I couldn't help but think I missed the one time. This afternoon, millions of people will go home and some of you will go home and turn on the television and watch America's favorite game. This week I was thinking about this godly people doing sinful things. When I was thinking about a Super Bowl that happened. You know, if Super Bowl is watched by millions of people. Most watched program every year. And uh, Back in 1999, the, the, two people that were, the two teams that were playing against each other were the Atlanta Falcons and the Denver Broncos. And I remember this Super Bowl because it, it was one of those where Atlanta was the up-and-coming team. This is back when Atlanta was good. They were the up-and-coming team, and and they had just defeated the Minnesota Vikings. This is back when Minnesota was good. They had beaten the Minnesota the week before to get to the Super Bowl, and they had stunned everybody by doing it. And they were going up against the Denver Broncos with this aging quarterback that nobody knew if he could win it anymore named John Elway. The coach of the Falcons used to be Elway's coach on the Broncos. There are all these storylines, and you know how Super Bowl week is. Storylines led up to the week, and things were going all over the place, and people here and there, they have all these awards things during the week. And one of the top guys on the Atlanta Falcons this year was a guy named Eugene Robinson. He was a starting safety. And Eugene was a well-respected team leader, the guy that everybody kind of looked to. In fact, on the Saturday before the Super Bowl, Eugene Robinson won the Bart Starr Award for Courage and Character, given each year to the football player who most exemplified the character of Christ in the way he played the game and lived his life. Robinson was vital to stopping the Broncos with their down-the-field passing attack. On the Saturday night before the Super Bowl on Sunday, Eugene Robinson found himself in a part of South Beach that he should have never been in. And he paid a lady on the street $40 for some favors. And the lady on the street wasn't looking for that. She was an undercover police officer. Eugene Robinson, while they were there the week of the Super Bowl, they had passed out thousands of flyers about his upcoming book on living the Christian life as a pro athlete. And as his coach, Dan Reeves, went to bed that night and went getting ready for the game the next day, he got a phone call from the local police station that his star Christian safety had just been arrested for solicitation. You miss the one time, you don't get a second chance. He played the next day, terribly. Some people said it was the worst game of his life. The two biggest pass plays of the day, the Broncos specifically targeted him and beat him. And 
afterwards he just said his head wasn't quite in the game. Now, the truth is, you or I may not have had something at that stakes. We may not have been at that level. None of us are getting national attention for something that's happened. But most of us, in fact, all of us can identify with the failure of other human beings. In fact, one writer has said the only thing that every human being on the planet has in common is failure. What do you do when that happens? We're in this series called AHA where we're talking about those moments of awakening, those moments of realization, that moment of coming to ourselves. And we started talking about the prodigal son and how he walked away from the father and he found himself and returned. And then we, we talked about Moses having this awakening to his purpose. But today I, I want to talk about a, a, an awakening that's not always pleasant. In fact, it can be painful sometimes, but it's necessary. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to get there in a minute. I want to tell you the story before we get to Psalm 51. Many of you know the story, but in Psalm 51, it's a writing of David. Now, somebody tell me who David is. King of Israel, right? David was a guy that, when you look at the Bible, it says lots of things about him, but almost all of it is positive. David was a guy that, when he was a child, was selected by God through the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. He, he was a guy that, that grew up and, and fought Goliath and, and warded off bears and was a, a strong man, a courageous man, heroic man. Uh, he was a guy that was strong in battle. In fact, he would walk down the he would walk down the road, and while the king was Saul, they would talk about the few that Saul had killed and the many, many that David had killed. People were singing his song about he's the next one, he's the great one. He, he was kind of like the, uh, at that time in Israel, he was kind of like the NFL backup quarterback, the most popular guy on the roster. Everybody wanted to see him. Let's see this guy and see the chance he has. And he became king and did amazing things, started unifying the country, started conquering land, started to see come to fruition what God had wanted the nation to do. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down and look at it a little later. It starts off with this ominous statement that just says, and in that time of year when the kings went to war, David stayed behind. Now, I know that that statement doesn't sound like you found yourself in a, a not good section of South Beach in a place where you shouldn't be. But the reality is David's first mistake in chapter 11 is that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And so he found himself in a place he was not supposed to be. And when he found himself in a place that he wasn't supposed to be, he finds himself looking out. And as his boredom or the reality that all the men are gone to war or whatever is happening, he glances over on top of a roof and on top of a roof across the way is this woman and an accidental glance turns into a stare turns into a desire turns into i need you to go get her and david who is this amazing king who is this man as scripture describes him after god's own heart who is a smart wise and godly man makes a dumb foolish sinful decision. And in 2 Samuel it tells us that he brings her in. A little bit later they find out that she is with child. 
And they call the husband and say, listen, the husband who's out fighting, you got to come back. There's something you got to come. And the husband says, I will not return. I will not go. And so David thinks the only way to take care of this is to get rid of him. Because if I don't get rid of him, they're going to know he was off to war. She became pregnant. Obviously, it's not him. They're going to look around. It'll get back to me. We got to do something about this. So he sent a command for all of his guys to go to the front line, to put the husband right on the front line. And right when the battle started for everybody to retreat but him in fact that's what happens verse 26 of chapter 11 of second samuel tells us this about what happened when uriah's wife that's bathsheba heard that her husband was dead she mourned for him there was a period of mourning a time of mourning and after the time of mourning was over david had her brought to his house she became his wife bore him a son and you read that part and you think it sounds like David's accomplished. The government conspiracy and cover-up has worked. She's in his house. She's his wife. Her husband's dead. Everything's okay. But then the last phrase says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so here you have David. In the midst of committing a sin that he knows is wrong in the sight of his nation that he knows is wrong in the sight of God that he knows it is wrong in the sight of his own heart and doing everything he can to cover it up because he's afraid of the ramifications if he does it. He brings her to his house. He puts her in his house. He makes her, makes her one of his wives. He has a son. Everything seems to be okay. But it tells us in Scripture that the Lord is displeased with David. Now... This is where we have to get some information from other parts of the Bible because over in Psalm 32 we find out that even though David seemed to have everything covered up, it was not an easy year for him. In fact, in Psalm 32 he says, How great it is for those of you that have your sins forgiven because for a while I didn't and it felt like my bones were drying up inside of me. And that God's hand was a burden on top of me. What do you do when you don't just make a mistake or you don't do something just dumb and you don't just make a foolish decision, but you mess up big time? How do you handle that? How do you move on from that? How do you move forward? Because if we're honest with ourselves today, if we're honest in this room today, Every single one of us could think back, or uh, if you haven't yet, the day will come. You could think back to a moment, to a time, to an event when you know you messed up big time. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we have never dealt with that, it feels like a burden on us. It feels like someone is pressing down upon us. You lay down at night and it can't escape your mind. And you do whatever you can. You watch TV or you... you uh, you get on, on your phone or you look around, you get on the computer to try to just deaden it so that you can just go to sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night and you go and get something to eat and it's just there. You wake up in the morning or, or you're walking down and everything's fine. You haven't thought about it in a while and something, a song, a picture, a memory reminds you and it floods back. And you live with that hand of God on you. You live with your bones dying within you. You live in that moment. And it affects your personality and it affects your mood. 
and affects the people around you. Maybe it's a habitual thing. Maybe it's not one mistake. Maybe it's not one huge mistake, but it's a pattern of behavior. It's a pattern of talking about people that you know is wrong. It's a pattern of sharing things that shouldn't be shared with other people. It's a pattern of, of, of just skimming a little bit here and there. It's a, it's a pattern of logging on every night or every other night or, or twice a week to websites that you should never be visiting. It's a pattern of, of glances. It's a pattern of discussions. It's a pattern of communications. It's a pattern of text messages. What I find interesting about the story of David is this. David lived, what most people think, for a year with this burden on him, weighing on him. Now, here's the thing. For David, every time he saw his wife Bathsheba, some of that came back. Every time he saw his son, some of that came back. He couldn't help but think of what he had done to this family and to her husband. But he thought he'd gotten away with it. In chapter 12 of Second Samuel, again, you can just listen. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was a prophet. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor men had nothing except one little ooh lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, jank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. This is where everybody goes, oh, or ugh, whatever. It was like a daughter to him. Now, let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever known somebody who treats their pets too well? Anybody ever known that? You know how I know that? If I see on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter any clothing at all on a dog, right? It's too much, all right? I love you. Some of you have stepped on your toes. That's all right. It's too much, all right? I know that's adorable sweater, but Fifi doesn't need it, all right? This guy had a lamb that was the only one they had. Loved it. Said it treated like a daughter. Would eat at the table. I know none of you feed the dog or the cat off the table, right? It was a family member. Loved it. Instagram pictures of it in sweaters. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man's house. Rich man, welcome to traveler. Hospitality is a big deal in that day. When the traveler came, you rolled out the best. You gave him the best of the best. You made sure they had a big meal, great meal. And when he did, the rich man refrained from taking one of his sheep or cattle. Now, personally, I would have preferred the cattle. Amen? Apparently not. Apparently you're not beef people out there. He didn't take one of his own to prepare a meal. Instead, he went and took the ulam that belonged to the poor man and prepared it to the one who had come. So he doesn't take any of his lot. He goes over and gets the one that the guy treated like a daughter, fed from the table, cuddled in his arms, loved dearly, and says, thank you, I'll take this. And not only did he take it, what did he do to it? Yeah, to cook it, you have to kill it first, right? Killed it, cooked it, fed it to the traveler stranger now first of all you realize this isn't a real story okay it's a parable verse five 
of that verse, of that chapter tells us. David burned with anger against the man. Now, why would David be so upset about that? What had David done when he was growing up? He was a shepherd, right? So he understands, and my guess is he understands how this man felt about this one sheep. His family probably wasn't a real wealthy family, and and he understands that. He gets mad. He gets angry. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times. I can't believe he would do such a thing and have no pity on this man. And then Nathan looks at David And says four words. You are the man. Now I know that in our day that's become kind of a a cool thing to say. Man, you the man. It is not cool whatsoever right here. David, you are the man. And then God says to David, listen, David, I gave you everything. I created a kingdom for you. I gave you power over it. I gave you a house. I set you up in a place that you wouldn't believe. And if you would have needed more, if that wasn't enough for you, I would have given you anything you would have asked me. And yet you have decided to go and do what you wanted to do and to claim something that was not your own, all because of what is in your heart. He tells him that because of that, the sword will never depart from your house. You'll have trouble all your days. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity. His own son in the years ahead would start a civil war with his dad over control of the kingdom. He said, I'm going to take your wives and give them to ones that are close to you. Basically, your wives are going to have relationships with your best friend, and we're going to do it out in public. You tried to hide it. It's going to be in public. He says, in fact, I will do it in broad daylight before all Israel. And at that moment, David does the only responsible and smart and wise and godly thing you can do when you're caught in the middle. Five words. I have sinned against you. David takes what has happened and says, I don't have any other explanation. I don't have any way out of it. I'm not going to try to explain it away. I've sinned against you. Now, I told you earlier, you could open your Bibles to Psalm 51. If you're there, that's where we're going. Because here's what I love about this passage of Scripture is here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David says, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the Lord. What's interesting is Psalm 51 gives us a fuller description of what he said. And here's what I'm going to tell you when you find yourself in that place. Because contrary to what my friend said in our Ph.D. class, contrary to what I said about Eugene Robinson even, that whole thing about when you mess up one time, you don't get a second chance. The the truth is, Scripture teaches there's always a second chance. And it doesn't matter how badly you've messed up. There's always a second chance. And what David shows us in Psalm 51 is the exact path that we need to travel to have the second chance. Three things and then we're done real quickly. First of all, you've got to own what you did. Confess your mistake. Own it. David says in Psalm 51, this amazing passage of Scripture, that he starts off by simply just saying, 
that I have sinned against you. It's almost like what he said over in Second Samuel, except expanded. In verse 1 it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know, look how many times he says, my sin, my transgressions. My transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. I was sinful from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Own up to what you've done. We live in a society that nobody wants to own up to what they've done. They lawyer up. They explain something else some other way. They work in a different way to try to figure out what's going on so they can blame other people. And here's what David says. It starts at our youngest days. I have seen that with my own kids. You know what I've discovered in my kids' lives? It's never their fault. Can I get an amen from the parents in the house today? Well, if Luke hadn't, well, Maddie said, well, Eli was, just own up to it. Don't you as parents sometimes say, if you would just own up to it, I would go much easier on you. But now that you've denied it and blamed and lied about it, guess what? Oh, it's on now, right? You know. And it goes from, you know who's doing it now? Ava. Maybe Mimi, Daddy. She needs time out. She says that. Maddie is full sentences at two. And the thing is, we look at our kids and we see that, but man, don't we do it ourselves. Well, if I hadn't been brought up or... If my parents hadn't been divorced or if my friend hadn't said what they said or if he hadn't walked out on me, if she hadn't taken that away, we look for excuses instead of admitting, owning up to it, confessing it. David doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try any way other than say, this is what I've done. This is what is wrong. And I have sinned against you, God. Secondly, not only do we own up to our own mistake, own up to what we've done. Secondly, we accept God's forgiveness on God's terms. He says, I was sinful from birth. Cleanse me with his. He's asked him to blot it out, to wash it away, to cleanse it. But then he says in verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. The, the word hyssop there, that, that was an herb that they used. That they dipped in blood as part of the sacrifice. And what David is saying there is, I am willing to accept whatever needs to be done in order for me to be forgiven and set right. And sometimes that means God lets you endure things. It means that he allows you to walk through things in order to not to be forgiven because of the work you've done, but to understand the forgiveness that God is bringing to you. And God says, I forgive you through Jesus Christ. You're forgiven, but understand the cost and the price that was paid. David says, could you hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity? He asks God, this is in verse 10, he says, create in me a pure heart. What's interesting there is that word create is only used a few times in the entire Bible, and it's always used of God. And it means literally to take nothing and make something out of it. 
It's the word used in Genesis 1 where God created the earth. And it says, God, I know that there is nothing pure. There is nothing good. There is nothing right in my heart. Could you, out of that nothingness, create a brand new, clean, pure heart in the midst of this? I don't deserve it. There's nothing I can do to make it. But God, you can. God, would you create pureness in me? And God, who has for centuries created created purity out of impurity would do that in David's life. After you own up to your mistake, own up to your sin, after you accept God's forgiveness on God's terms, then lastly, you just become available to be used for Him. David says here, restore the joy of my salvation, and when that happens, the joy of your salvation is restored, then God, I want to instruct the generations that are to come about the importance of confession and following you. And this is what I think is really cool about that, because David says, if you'll restore me, if you'll create a clean heart, if you will do this, God, then help me to teach others about the need for this. And here's what I think is really cool about that, all right? We, today, in this room, at this hour, are part of the fulfillment of God answering David's request. And if you let this moment pass, then you have failed to recognize the importance of what David's teaching. Now, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you've really messed up. I don't know if there's something that's been lingering. Maybe there's a relationship that nobody talks about. Maybe there's a string of text messages out there right now that if suddenly got made public, it would embarrass and change everything. Maybe there's a string of websites on your history or used to be on your history before you deleted it. Maybe there was a time when you were younger when you made some decisions that you know went against what God intended and you still live with that every day. But here's what I know. That you can be free of that burden but it starts with confession. David's aha moment was you are the man. And for many of us in this room today, God is speaking to our hearts and he's bringing things up. And what he's saying to us is maybe not the way David did in the public way or Eugene Robinson, but he's saying you are the man. What is it that God is placing on your heart? Maybe here in a minute, we're going to have an invitation here in a minute, a response time. And maybe in a minute, you just need to come and open your Bible up to Psalm 51. And you need to, with what you're thinking of in your own mind, read through that psalm. And instead of David confessing his sin, it becomes you confessing yours. Maybe you say, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. I've got to get a place different, quiet, private. Maybe you need to do that this afternoon. Maybe you're doing it this week. But don't let a moment pass when God may be speaking to something that he wants to free your burden of the sin in your life. Would you pray with me this morning?